And oh my goodness, the choir. Wow. Wow. Thank you for leading us in worship. Oh, good morning, everyone. I'm so excited to be back here. So, Mike, I can't remember the last time I had the privilege of sharing with you all on a Sunday morning. Um, and I've been eagerly looking forward to this for quite some time. And, you know, as I was praying about uh, sort of the topic and the message and, and the Lord led me to, you know, something really interesting. And I'm sure if any of you have cheated and, you know, looked at the bulletin to see what we're going to talk about this morning, you saw Leviticus and you're thinking, oh, no. <laughs> no, be excited. Be excited. I mean, Leviticus gets, you know, kind of a, a bad rap. And, uh, but really it is like when you, you look at the books of Moses, the way God has, has centered it right in the, in the middle of the story, sort of the crown jewel. There's so much buried treasure in the book of Leviticus. And my hope, if nothing else, this morning you take away, is, is that there's more to Leviticus than you thought. And, and more to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, than maybe you thought before. And I hope that some of you go home from this and with a little bit of eagerness and hunger to maybe look again at some of these familiar passages or boring passages or weird passages and, and look again and just see what maybe, what treasures God have, have maybe has hidden in the text for us to discover. As Solomon said, you know, it's the glory of God to conceal things and it's the glory of kings to dig it out. And so when we study the Bible, we get to be kings. So uh, Leviticus 23 is, is an interesting chapter. It's where, you know, God is lining out all of these different feast days, these different holidays that the Israelites are going to be celebrating, you know, both at that time and, and for generations and generations to come. And, and towards the end of this of the section, and he's, he's given um, so far two of these feasts that are, are a big enough deal that, you know, as part of the celebration, like everybody needs to come to Jerusalem and they need to present themselves before the Lord. This is not optional. If you don't participate, you're not really an Israelite, that kind of thing. And then there's a third one that we're given. And we're told that the third one is really the most important and not just here, but like in many other places in scripture. And when you read it, it's, it's weird. Like, it's just weird. Like, because the, the first big feast is Passover. That makes total sense to us, right? Passover, 10 plagues, splitting of the Red Sea, you know, all of that. Let my people go. Like, that's, that's a story worth making a movie or two about, right? And then the second feast, Pentecost, oh my goodness, you know, children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai and the mountain is covered with the cloud of God's presence and there's fire and lightning and thunder and angels and a horn blowing that's just shaking everything. Like that's, and, and, and in the midst of that, you know, the, 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 the Torah, the word of God is given to the people. That seems like, yeah, let's remember that day. Let's keep telling our children about that. But then the third feast, the one we're going to look at this morning, the Feast of Booths, or in Hebrew, Sukkot, it seems to be about when the people lived in booths. <laughs> and somehow this is more important than the other two. And it's, it's often called when they're just talking about the great feast in Jewish writings, it, it's referring to this one, like this is the greatest one. And I don't know about you, but that just seems really weird to me. <laughs> like nothing against, you know, being in the wilderness, you know, with the Lord and sleeping in booths. But that doesn't seem to me to be a bigger deal than Passover or Pentecost. But God does. And that intrigues me. 
And that makes me want to look deeper and closer at what the Word of God is saying and see what buried treasure is found there. So, I'm just, you know, because the, the section on the Feast of Booth goes from uh, Leviticus 23, 33, all the way to 43. That's a long little bit of text. But I'm just going to summarize it um, really quickly for you. So, he, what, are, what are some facts God gives to Moses about this day? Well, you're going to celebrate it on the 15th day of the seventh month, and it's going to be for seven days, and you're going to call it the Feast of Booths, um, and you're going to celebrate it, and you're going to prevent these, these food offerings before God, um, and then we get a little section where it's just like, okay, and these are all the feasts, right? Because we've just had a bunch, a big list of feasts. We get a paragraph just saying, hey, these are the feasts. You should do them. Do the sacrifices, guys. Just, you know, when you're supposed to do it, do it, do the thing. And then in verse 39, it's almost as if, wait, wait, guys, you, you, you probably already forgot about Feast of Booths. So I'm going to tell you again about Feast of Booths. And again, it's on the seventh month, guys. Remember, that's the seventh month on the 15th day. And it's seven days. You got it? It's seven. Oh, and, and here's some other instruction just to help you out. Um, go ahead and, and go find a, a fruit of a beautiful tree and you go ahead and collect that and then get some leafy palm fronds and go collect that for yourself and go, you know, find a nice sturdy branch that's fallen on the ground and then, you know, get a piece of a, a river willow that's, you know, dipped in the river and you take that. And once you got those four things in your hand, oh my goodness, you're going to party before God. You're going to be so happy that you have these four pieces of plant in your hand, man, this is going to be a great party. And you're going to party for seven days like that. And you're all going to live in booths. Um, And, you know, when you do this every year, guess what's going to happen, guys? All the future generations are going to know that God, when he took the people of Israel out of Egypt, he made them dwell in booths. Isn't that great? This is the best feast ever. It's weird. It's weird, right? Like, it's okay to say that. There's weird stuff in the Bible. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, when we see the weird stuff, our inclination is either just to, like, pretend we don't see it and keep reading, or we make excuses for it. Uh, well, people back then just didn't understand X, Y, or Z, or whatever. Um, but I think reality, the weird stuff is there to make us look again and take a closer look. It's an invitation to investigate. So let's investigate this this so-called important feast. So, um, what are some things that, that I notice that, you know, somebody who's, you know, spent a long time soaking in, in the Bible and trying to understand it? Well, I, I noticed that it's on the seventh month, the month of Tishri. What happened on the 15th day of the seventh month? At this point in the story, nothing. Like, why that particular, why did God choose that day? Like, that's not the time of year, it's, it's not the month even when the Israelites left Egypt or anything like that. So, what's, what's a big deal about the seventh month? Well, it just happens to be exactly six months after another date that's very significant and very obvious, which is the date of Passover. Because Passover is celebrated in the Hebrew calendar every year on the 15th day of the first month. So, if you'd imagine kind of the yearly calendar like a, like a clock, like a circle... Then, and, and if at noon was Passover, then at exactly, you know, 6 p.m. or a.m. or what have you, that's when Booths takes place. It's literally the furthest point away 
in the calendar. So when your mind and your body and your life is as far away from you thinking about Passover stuff, God says, I want you to be doing this. I want you to be reenacting something that happened during the Exodus story. So that's interesting. That tells me that there's some kind of connection, perhaps, between Passover and booths. Now, okay, they're six months apart. They both start on the 15th day. They both last seven days. They both ask you to do some weird things, right? Passover asks you to get all the leaven out of your house, sweep it all out, get every last crumb of it out. And for seven days, you're not going to have any leaven in your house. Booths asked you to, hey, leave your house <laughs> and go live in a little booth for seven days. Okay. Passover asks you to um, slaughter and eat a lamb together with your family um, in, in a way that's a little bit odd. There's certain elements of the meal that aren't normally there and, and just things that, about that Passover meal that you don't do any other time of the year when you eat lamb. And Booths asks you to, hey, get these four pieces of plant life and, and you're going to rejoice with them for seven days. This is another weird thing you don't normally do any other time of the year. You're going to do that. Okay. So there's some kind of connection here. And, and so what is it? What, are, are they really about the same thing? Is, is Booth's just, uh, you know, Passover part two, in case you forgot about it, let's think about it again, or is there something more to it? And so often, really good thing to do when, you know, the Bible's talking about something is just go back and read about the first time that it happened and see if there's any clues there that Leviticus is expecting us to already know. You know, Leviticus expects you that you've already read Exodus. It's just how it, how it works. And so is there something in Exodus that we're supposed to remember and know that when we read this in Leviticus, we're like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. So if you go to Exodus 12, right after the 10th plague and, you know, the, the Egyptians are so eager to get these Israelites out of Egypt as fast as possible that they're literally like giving them anything they want. You want some clothes? Here's some gold. Here's some jewelry. Take whatever you want. Take our, take all the cattle, take all the sheep, take all the camels, whatever. And please, please, please just leave. Go, go. You can go now. And, and so they, they head out and it says in um, verse 37, that the, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses, so that was sort of the, the gathering location where everybody gathered up for the Exodus. They're gathered there at Ramses. And, and what's, what do we know about Ramses? Not a whole lot from the Bible, but we do know it was in the region of Goshen. So that's sort of where the Israelites were in general. And it's also where all the, it's sort of the breadbasket of Egypt. So that's probably where all the grain would be gathered up and stored and all of that. And already I'm thinking, well, that's a little bit connected to, to Booths, because we know Booths takes place at this time of year that we're in right now. It would have been October-ish. And that's when the harvest comes in, and people would be gathering the harvest into their storehouses and all that. Okay, so that's a little bit of a connection. And it says that when they journeyed, they journeyed from Ramses, so that's the start of the long Exodus journey, and the first place they came to and stopped was called Sukkot. The place, the place was called Booths. And it's all, why is there a place, you know, east of Ramses called Booths? Like the Bible doesn't even tell us, but maybe it, it expects us to know an earlier story in Genesis about another place that was called Booths. And in that story, we're told how it got its name. And that's in, in Genesis 33, 
right after Jacob has come back with this big family that God's given him, and, and he's coming back fleeing his father-in-law and meets his brother, has a tense interaction there, but things go well. And then he's finally coming into the land of Israel and settle, beginning to settle. Um, one of his first stops after leaving his brother Esau is it says he came and he was kind of in the wilderness. And so he built a house for himself and he built all these booths all for all his animals because he had a lot of animals. And it says, and they called the place Sukkot or booths because he had to build booths. And that's it. That's the story. And so apparently, as they were leaving Egypt, they came to a place in the wilderness and they had a lot of animals with them. Um, but they don't even get to build houses for themselves and then booths for the animals. They just get booths, just a lot of booths, people, animals, everybody sleeping in a booth tonight. So you're sleeping there with your wife and your kids and your donkey and your sheep and your goats and everything in this little temporary shelter. And this is your first night of freedom. Yay. Right? Uh, and we're told that on this journey, there were about 600,000 men, women, besides all the women and all the children, and there was a mixed multitude that went up with them. Some of the Egyptians were like, you know what? I'm pretty convinced that your God is the real God. Can we come with you? And they said, yeah, sure, come on. So there was a bunch of others that went with them, and we're told, and they had very much livestock, flocks, and herds. And guess what? They baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt because it wasn't leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and they couldn't wait and they hadn't prepared any provisions for themselves. Think about that. You have left the home that you've known for how long? And by the way, it says, by the way, that time, the people of Israel had lived in Egypt 430 years. And actually, it was at the end of that 430 years on the very day that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So for 430 years, all your people have known is the life of, live, of Egypt. And for most of the time, it's been slavery. And, you know, you, every day was going to be the same. You knew exactly what you were going to do all day. You're going to make bricks. You knew exactly what you were going to eat every day. You know, we're going to eat meat from these meat pots. They're going to bake us the bread. Food comes in, bricks, you know, we're just making, producing bricks for the Egyptians. And, and that's our life. And it's hard and it's full of suffering, but you know exactly what to expect. Exactly. No day is going to be different than the day before it. Like it's consistent. You know where your food's going to come from. Your slave masters are going to feed you. You know where you're going to sleep that night. You have a place for where you're going to sleep and where your family's going to Like everything is just known. And now after 430 years of that, you're stepping out into something completely unknown. And you don't even have enough provisions for the journey because you don't even know how long the journey is going to take. You didn't have, know what you're supposed to bring with you because you don't even know where you're going. How scary is that? And you think about that, that first night in Sukkot, the place they call Sukkot, and here they are, and, and all the things that are going to be running through your mind if you're, you know, a parent and looking at your kids and wondering like, okay, where's the food going to come from, right? Because we've got, okay, we've got a few unleavened cakes. That's great. How long is that going to last? How much potable water did they bring? I mean, they're going towards the desert. What are they going to drink? And plus, we've got not just our, our children to feed, but all of these animals, like, 
okay, I guess we can start eating the animals at some point, but, you know, how long is that going to last? Remember, at this point in the story, they don't know about that there's going to be a split rock (laughs) to give them water. They don't know about the manna yet. Like, none of that has happened yet. That first night in Sukkot, that first night in booths. What do they know? This is what it says, the very next verse. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. All they knew was that God was there. He was watching. And the only, their only contribution was, are they going to trust God? Are they going to trust that because he's with them and he's watching, he's going to be a better master than Pharaoh was? He's going to provide the basic needs that they have. And you think about all of the what ifs and they don't know this God very well yet, right? The things they saw in Egypt might have been kind of scary. They know that he's powerful. He says that he loves them. He says that he understands and knows their pain. But, you know, what is that going to look like? What does that mean? And so it seems like Sukkot is an invitation The way that Passover is looking at the Exodus story kind of in the rearview mirror, sort of like looking at all the things that God has rescued us from. The same way that when we gather in Easter time in the spring and we reflect on all that God did to rescue us from sin, from death. It seems like Booth is asking us now to look forward and see what has God saved us for? And the answer seems to be life and relationship with him. Because it says, it goes on to say there in Exodus 12, so this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And so because God watched over us that first night and proved that he would continue to be faithful and watch over us every night, we gather and we remember on this time that we, we want to respond to that. We want to look for the Lord. We want to draw near to the Lord and acknowledge that he has already drawn near to us. And this sort of helps explain and understand what the business is with all the plant stuff that you gather. Because when you gather, if you look at the four, what's called the four species in Hebrew, you, you get a fruit, you get some leaves, you get something that looks like a stick, and you get something that looks like roots. And you put those four together and what does it represent? It looks like a tree, like a full grown tree you're holding in your hand. And what's interesting about this, this tree, this symbolic tree that you wave before the Lord and rejoice, is it's, it doesn't just say, you know, take any fruit. It says, take a fruit from a beautiful tree, tree that's pleasing to the eyes. Now, if you're, you know, student of the Bible, where, where have we previously read about a tree that was really beautiful to the eyes of humans? Oh, that was Genesis 3. That got us into a lot of trouble, that tree did when we were drawn to it. But we're not told to eat that fruit. We're just told to hold it in our hands, like it's there. And and the one hand, we're we're holding that tree at arm's length. And the other hand, we're rejoicing and praising God. It's almost as if to say, God, we acknowledge that you have invited us back into your presence, into this Eden space. And we don't want this tree. Like we see it, it's there, but we want you. We want you, God. We don't need this. We need you. We want you. And we worship and we praise you that you are here with us, dwelling with us. And if you think I'm crazy, let's see how Jesus interpreted or reinterpreted this feast in the New Testament. So in John 7, 
you know, Jesus went and you know, he, he followed the, the rules just like everyone else. And he showed up in, in Jerusalem for all the feasts and including the Feast of Booths, which John calls the great feast. So even in John's, in John's time, they still thought of this as the most important feast, the biggest deal, right? And so Jesus comes in John 7, he, he's sneakily, because you know, people are trying to kill him in Judea. Um, but he slips in amongst the feast and he's participating in it and talking and interacting with people. And, and part of how they, at that time in Jesus's day, because they still had the temple there and they would have a big, big party. They would take these gigantic menorahs, these big candelabras, um, and they put it in the uh, court of the temple and take gallons and gallons and gallons of oil and they, these huge cups and they would light them on fire every night and it would glow like nothing you've ever seen before. Like it would just, it was like this light that's shining down from the top of Zion over the whole city of Jerusalem and people would party and they had this ceremony every morning where they would gather this water from the pool of Siloam and then they would, would parade it up this pilgrim's road all the way up to the temple mount and into the temple and the priests would pour the water onto the altar and they would pour wine onto the altar. And there was just so much rejoicing. Rabbis wrote that if you weren't, if you had not been in Jerusalem in those days during the Feast of Booths and saw how the people rejoiced, then you've never actually seen what rejoicing looks like. Like it was just phenomenal. And, and especially when they were drawing the water, remembering the water that flowed from the rock in the wilderness. And, and they would sing or, or, or chant Isaiah 12, 3, which was um, where God says, and you with joy are going to draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, if we were speaking Hebrew, like salvation, we would say Yeshua. Oh, wait, that's Jesus's name. And so while the people were told on the last day of the feast, so the people are chanting, yes, with joy, with joy, we're going to draw water from the wells of Yeshua. This guy named Yeshua stands up and he cries out over the crowds, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Now, John very kindly, you know, adds this little comment for us to explain this. He says, now, he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so, for Jesus, what, what Booth is really about is, is, yeah, it's acknowledging how God was, was with the people in the wilderness and was their shepherd as they slept in booths like a bunch of sheep. And now he cared for them and took care of every single one of their needs, every single one. And he was trustworthy and he was faithful. And Jesus says, and that was just the seed of a bigger promise that is ultimately fulfilled in him and our Lord and our Messiah. And in the personal presence of God with us, in us, the Holy Spirit. And whom we can daily surrender ourselves to. All of us, all of our anxiety, all of our worry, all of our, you know, scarcity mentality. And do we have enough? And what about next year and this year? And all of the, the panic that we go from day to day in. And just, I just going to surrender all that God you are with me. You are my shepherd and you're not far off. I don't have to come out, get to you. You're already there with me. You're already dwelling with me, not in a booth, but in my very heart. 
And so God, I just want to acknowledge that, celebrate that, and thank you, Lord, for wherever it is you're taking me. Because we don't always know the direction he's leading us. And we don't know what we're going to need. But what we can trust is he's going to be with us every step of the journey. And he's going to provide for us because he is good and he is faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Abba, Father, oh, I just worship you this morning. I just thank you so much for all that you have done over and over and over and over again in human history, God, to show yourself good just show yourself faithful, trustworthy, a God of overflowing, loyal love, a God of mercy and grace who is so patient with us, more patient than we can sometimes understand. And so, Lord, we just lift our hands up to you, Lord. We just say thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. And we just want to surrender ourselves fresh to you this morning. And say, Lord, we are so grateful that you have made your home with us. Lord, help us to place all that we have, all that we are in your hands and trust you, God, because you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.